I'll begin with a brief introduction. If you have not read uh, the program in terms of this session, I'm pretty sure you've read about this session. Uh, in terms of who I am, I am Dwayne Winrow. You can call me Dwayne. <laughs> I'm the senior minister of the Reseda Boulevard Church of Christ uh, that's located in the San Fernando Valley. I received my training ministerially, you know, at an early age at the Nashville Christian Institute under the tutelage of Marshall Keeble. Many of you would not know of him, or may have only heard about him. Uh, I left there to ultimately go to Southwestern Christian College, uh, where I did um, my first two years of, of college studies, and then came to Pepperdine University, you know, where I did my BA in Biblical Studies and an MS degree in Ministry, and ultimately I went to the University of Southern California where I earned a Master's of Arts in Religion and Social Ethics and a PhD in Religion and Social Ethics. So. I'm a Osona, I'm from Oklahoma, <laughs> a little place 38 miles southeast of Oklahoma City called Shawnee, raised in a small church there called Bell and Farrell. Uh, so that's, that's been my pilgrimage. The subject matter that uh, we're going to cover uh, in this session is sort of close, you know, it's close to my heart uh, because it deals with what I have come to embrace as the true character of the Christian faith. Now, I want to kind of readjust the title because I think the title is not necessarily consistent with my presentation <laughs> totally. I want to, uh, uh, our may not necessarily convey uh, first-handedly what, you know, this is really all about. When I say beyond the primitive, I want to say literally beyond the primitive character of the church towards a prophetic vision, the prophetic vision of the church. Um, and then I want to help you to understand when I use the term primitive. Uh, I'm using it with special meaning. I realize uh, what primitivism is often uh, referencing in terms of Christian traditions. And there have been several streams of primitivism. When we think of primitivism, typically, you know, in our circles academically, uh, the primitive description of the vision, what is called the restoration vision, is often used pejoratively. Um, I'm not embracing, you know, that particular uh, concept of primitivism, uh, which is the idea of searching for an expression, or the idea of searching for a more pure expression of Christian of Christianity and uh, the notion that the early or uh, the primitive church uh, is used as a normative model. You know, it's finding in the primitive church a normative model for critiquing uh, Christianity as it presently exists. Um, while I do embrace the notion of restoring or the notion of primitive of the primitive vision, uh, I do not see it as a low vision in terms of searching for some church in the first century uh, that we're needing to restore. Uh, I see it as a high vision, a prophetic vision, 
a vision that is not in, in any way looking back on, on an ancient culture, um, but looking for a transcending vision of the Church of the Kingdom of God. Uh, the vision that was embraced by the early church. Uh, so if I'm in any way primitive, I'm primitive in that sense, you know, that there is a need, you know, to restore the vision of the early church and its self-identity as the kingdom of God on earth. Uh, the church as a colony of heaven, you know, so I embrace that. By primitive in this presentation, I'm referring to an expression of the Christian faith uh, that is pre-Constantinian, and I will deal with that uh, as we proceed, uh, that I consider to be more consistent with the ancient expression. And so for me, to be primitive is to be prophetic. One, these are terms that uh, interrelate to one another. To be primitive, to be primitive uh, in one's commitment to the kingdom is also to understand the prophetic character of primitivism, that is the church, uh, as it grows out of the movement of Jesus. You know, the movement of the Mediterranean Jew whose life, death, uh, and resurrection ushered forth a new way of life, a new way of struggle uh, that involved love, forgiveness, stewardship, service, and those type of things. Uh, so by primitive, I'm referring to an expression of the Christian faith that would be consistent with what I, what I call consistent, you know, with the ancient expression of the church. And when I say ancient, I'm not talking about classical Christianity. Uh, I'm talking about pre-Constantinian Christianity. And I'll, as I say, I'll explain that. Now first let me also explain what I mean by prophetic. When studying the Christian faith, one will note that there are two parallel and competing streams of the Christian tradition. You know, when you describe what we have, you know, in the Christian faith, there are parallel traditions that one might be called the priestly function of the church. When we talk about the priestly functioning of the church, we're talking about a tradition that places emphasis upon worship, upon spiritual life, spiritual development, cultivating one's relationship to God. Uh, the emphasis is upon strengthening one's fellowship with God, strengthening one's character, you know, and that's why uh, within what we might call the, the, the priestly functioning of the church, uh, emphasis upon Bible study, fellowship, worship, you know, and those things that has to do with making us better human beings, uh, making us stronger human beings, allowing the Holy Spirit to have free course in our lives. And so, uh, and living in harmony, you know, with the model of Christ as it is reflected in Scripture. So when we uh, study this notion of the church in terms of its priestly tradition, uh, there is much, this is often referred to as the quotidian. You know, in other words, the Bible and the scripture as, as the pattern or the, the scripture as the means by which or the standard by which, you know, we govern our lives. When we speak of the prophetic role of the church, we're talking about the role of the Christian faith as a change agent. Uh, the role of the Christian faith as the leaven in the loaf of society. The idea of the church as that city that sets on a hill that cannot be hid. The light of the world, the salt of the earth. Uh, now, Sometimes you will find in following the Christian tradition in terms of history that these, these traditions come in competition with one another. You'll find expressions of the Christian faith 
with one without the other. You know, church traditions are Christianity, versions of Christianity that appears to emphasize more about inward spiritual development with no outward relevance to the community and to the society as a whole. The privatizing, I call it the privatizing, you know, of the Christian faith. You know, we see that a lot. Uh, we get that in Western civilization and Western culture uh, with the notion of separation in terms of sacred and secular. You know, people say, well, that's a secular idea and, and that's a sacred idea. You know, and there's no harmony between, sec yeah, there's no uh, coincidence between the secular and the sacred. You know, so society and the world, you know, becomes two spheres, you know, in that way. And, and so the church don't have relevance in the, in, in the, have relevance in one but not the other. You know, so that's when we find uh, a competing tradition, uh, versions of Christianity that sort of compete with one another. Prophetic functions uh, would be referring to the involvement of the church, of the Christian faith in political concerns and activities in the wider community. And the priestly churches are bastions of survival and and the prophetic churches are networks of liberation. You know, so you got two different roles that sometimes you have one without the other and, and in many cases you have one in competition to the other. W.E. Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois, <laughs> a, a significant social critic in, in African-American studies often uh, speaks of something that he calls dual consciousness when uh, minorities, you know, grow up are, are greatly under the hegemony of a dominant culture. It imposes upon minorities this notion of double consciousness. Um, now let me just give an example of that. When I came to Pepperdine, you know, as a minority, <laughs> as an African-American professor, um, uh, experiencing that double consciousness, you know, I experienced it firsthand. Because the first thing uh, that happened was the professors of the division, of the religion division, took, we all went out to lunch together. And I knew I was under evaluation. <laughs> and so in that lunch encounter, I was asked to leave prayer. You know, as we might say, bless the food. Now, if you know anything about black church tradition and white church tradition, you know, there are just cultural differences. You know, even when it comes to just praying. <laughs> you know, I remember at Pepperdine, you know, I, I came, you know, when Dr. Pack, you know, was, was a noted professor in the religion department and he'd open every class, you know, with prayer. And, and it was very, very simplistic, you know, Lord, we just thank you for the beauty of this day and, and all of this and the atmosphere and all, of, you know, the, you know how black, black people pray to the great God of heaven, <laughs> the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <laughs> and so, so the point is, you know, when you're operating in a dominant culture, uh, quite naturally you have that consciousness of being evaluated, you know, in terms of the norms you know, of that culture, you know, and yet you have the consciousness of your own identity, you know, and who you are, you know, and how you may express yourself, you know, and that type of thing. Well, you know, coming back to, to the subject matter, uh, in as much as Christianity has developed uh, along the lines of these two dominant streams of tradition, what we call the priestly function and the prophetic function, uh, in many time, in many ways, uh, churches develop a form of schizophrenia, and in particular, let me say, the black church tradition. And the reason I, I, I mention the black church tradition is because prophetic Christianity in its contemporary expressions uh, is inseparable from the black church. In other words, this is a tradition as West. Uh, Carnell West, you know, in his dissertation, and I brought uh, the book that reflects his, his dissertation called 
prophesied division, prophesied deliverance in, Afri in African American revolutionary Christianity. And what West says about the origin of prophetic thought, prophetic religious thought, prophetic Christianity, how it originated among blacks and is inseparable from what is called the black church. He says, this tradition began the moment African slaves laboring in the sweltering heat on plantations owned and ruled primarily by white American Christians tried to understand their lives and their servitude in the light of biblical texts, Protestant hymns, and Christian testimonies. A tradition inseparable from the black church, referring to black Christian communities of many denominations, it came into being when slaves decided, often at the, at the risk of life and limb, to make Jesus their choice. And so it is an idea of reflecting upon the Christian faith through scripture, through hymnology, and all of that, and trying to understand one's life experience in light of all of that. And I argue, and as I want to explain uh, to you briefly and give a definition of the prophetic, you know, prophetic thought is the idea, you know, of the church involved and committed, you know, to uh, change not only in one's personal life, but in one's surroundings. In other words, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, he says, if any man is in Christ, he didn't simply say he's a new creature. He said a new creation. That simply means that the gospel impact changes not only a person's life, but everything that pertains to their life. And so uh, prophetic Christianity uh, is about that. Now, when you talk about dual consciousness, especially in as much as the prophetic rendering and the prophetic version of the Christian faith has much to do has much to do with um, with the in other words with the black church uh, this is what one writer said about dual consciousness in black church tradition I'm trying to find this quote uh, from Eric Lincoln uh, in his book uh, this is back in 1999. He says, throughout black Christianity, a dual consciousness was a dual consciousness, one located within the quest for spirituality and the other within the attempt to transfer morals to material reality. The conservative side of black faith conforms to traditional Western philosophy by locating the concept of liberation with the Geist, that's a German word, means the spirit, rather than within the material world. The conservative tendencies within the black faith reach for a spirit that liberates the soul, but not the body. In other words, it is not the concept of liberation or what we might academically refer to as sanctification uh, is a liberation of the spirit, but not one's social, you know, and political concerns. It does not have social and political concerns. And this is more or less what we find in the pervasive expressions of, Christian, of Christianity in our world. Let me say to you, in terms of understanding the prophetic tradition, is this. First of all, to be primitive is to be prophetic. Contradiction and transformation was at the core of the gospel message. When John the Baptist came on the scene, you can see John came in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets like Amos, you know, who spoke to power, who spoke truth to power, saying, let justice flow like a river and a righteousness like a mighty stream. Isaiah, in describing John as the harbinger before the coming of Christ, he says, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, saying, prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make straight his path in the desert. Make 
straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. This is a prophetic voice. You heard that, that same quotation in the last speech of Martin Luther King, you know, before his assassination. He says, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And he quoted that passage out of Isaiah. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. Crooked places are going to be made straight and rough places made smooth. John came in the prophetic tradition. Jesus modeled it. And we see that in his mission statement of Luke 4 when he comes to his hometown synagogue, takes the scroll from the rabbi and reads out of the prophet Isaiah, the passage that said the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? Preach the gospel to the poor, preach good news to the poor. He has anointed me to, uh, and sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who have been bruised and oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, a reference to the Old Testament concept of jubilee, freedom for the slaves, freedom from debt. And then the apostles themselves, and this is why we say we talk about this pre-Constantinian tradition of the Christian faith and what I when I use the word primitive, I'm referring to the character of the church before its absorption into the cultural ethos of the Roman Empire. Uh, Acts 17, 6, what did they say concerning the apostles? But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city crying, these who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I'm saying that the uh, early church was not privatized religion. Early church had tremendous impact, you know, in terms of its vision. And we see, we, we see this over and over. The major movements, understand this, when we talk about the relevance of the prophetic tradition in our world, in the making of America, the major movements in the making of America, you can mark this, was led by professing Christians associated with prophetic tradition, prophetic Christianity. In other words, abolitionists, women's suffrage, trade unions, civil rights movement, all of these movements that have made America more democratic, more freer, more, more equal. All of these movements were led by individuals professing a prophetic view of the Christian faith. Now, when I say prophetic, or when I talk about primitivism, uh, or the primitive character of the church, I speak of that in relationship to the rise of what I want to simply label, and others have done so also, as the rise of Constantinian Christianity, the Constantine tradition of the Constantinian versions of the Christian faith. And that is versions of Christianity that came out of the incorporation of the Christian faith into the cultural ethos of the Roman Empire, resulting in the loss of prophetic fervor, resulting in, in other words, Constantinian Christianity sets comfortably, these type of believers can set comfortably at the table of imperial elites. Constantinian Christians uh, highlight individual piety, individual conversion with no relevance to the institutions of society that wound and scar people and the role of Christians in bringing about change. Constantinian traditions of the Christian faith are most pervasive today. If you talk about Christianity today, you ask somebody, uh, are you a Christian? And usually their impression is, you know, you're referring to 
Christianity as it is manifested, which is mainly Christ, uh, what we might call Constantinian expressions of Christianity, which is deeply conservative, right-wing, militaristic, pro-imperialism, materialistic, professing believers. That's, in other words, a form of Christianity that is comfortable with imperialistic culture, that does not speak truth to power in that way. The source of strength for this, this form or this expression of Christianity is not the word of God, is not the gospel message, but it's, a, it's aligned, or it comes from its alignment with the cultural ethos of the empire. Let me argue than this. When we speak of the prophetic character of the Christian faith, the notion of the church as a prophetic institution and not simply a privatized, personal, and individualized form of salvation uh, is first of all supported by the norms, what is called, what I call the prophetic norms of Christianity two forms of redemption inseparable one from another. The idea of salvation, that is being endowed with, the divine, with divine grace that enables individuals, regardless of class, sex, or ethnicity to fulfill his or her potentialities in community. Uh, that's, that's the practical definition of salvation, by the way. <laughs> let me, uh, but let me speak of these two expressions that give actually give rise to what I have described as the priestly function versus you know and the prophetic function. One is the notion uh, in salvation. In other words, salvation is manifested in two ways. Number one, a promise of this worldly liberation, and secondly, other worldly salvation, eternal life. This worldly liberation, which we often refer to as sanctification. You know, the idea of being set apart, the idea of being made free from the very sins that God has forgiven you of. You know, that's, you know, the personal expression of that. And otherworldly salvation. And uh, they go together. Like one could say, I am saved now, but not yet. I am sanctified now. But not yet. In other words, in other words, salvation is a now and a not yet experience. You know, salvation now, when, when a person is is immersed into Christ, that person is justified. We use we you know we use the term justification, referring to being forgiven. You know, being declared uh, not guilty. You know, of the very penalty of sin, and then. You know, we enter into the fellowship of the body of Christ and a process is initiated through the work of the spirit where we are now being freed from progressively from the very sins, you know, that we have been forgiven of. Don't think, you know, and I don't have to tell you this, you know, that, you know, when a person is baptized into Christ, they're not immediately free from sin. You know, they then all of a sudden, you know, it just left me. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't do the things I used to do. Don't like the things I used to like. You know, it ain't gone yet. You know, the Bible said, "Work out, work it out." Verse twelve of Philippians two, and what happens in verse thirteen? And God works in. As you work out, God works in. You know, Paul said, "Work out your deliverance with fear and trembling, and God will be at work in you, both to will and to do." and to accomplish his good work. So the very core norm of the Christian faith, uh, which is the notion of salvation, uh, cannot be divorced from its end time, end, time, end time aspect. Some just simply translate salvation, you know, as being saved as an otherworldly experience. In other words, they, they emphasize the otherworldly dimension of salvation. We're saved to go to heaven uh, at the expense of this worldly possibilities. And I'm saying in, in, the, in the prophetic notion, 
one does not uh, understand, one cannot embrace one without the other. Two inseparable notions of freedom. Allow me to describe it this way, existential freedom and social freedom. Existential freedom is the effect of divine grace that sustains and delivers people from, from the drudgery of death, disease, despair. It empowers one to become a freedom fighter. You know, it is those who have received the grace of God and have imbibed with the Spirit of God a unique way of loving others without condition you know, that could not be experienced otherwise. They become qualified to become freedom fighters in the world. Social freedom is the end result of the Christian praxis. That is personal, social, and political. That results in the divine gift. That results from the divine gift of grace. So you have two expressions. One, uh, so, you know, the idea of redemption is dual now, not yet. The idea of freedom is dual now and not yet. Even the idea of the Christian hope is a dialectical concept. It is a dual concept, a present hope and a future hope. You know, when you talk about hope, Paul, uh, what the Apostle Peter says, it's a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's a living hope. In what way is it living? Paul referred to the concept of hope as really one of the mysteries of the Christian faith. In Colossians 1, what, 27? You know, what is this mystery? He said, it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the present aspect of the Christian hope. You know, I um, working with a young lady who had who had been through uh, the you know the life a life of, of drug abuse and all the damage, you know, that that type of lifestyle, you know, brings about. Um, you know, I was this is when I was doing counseling. Uh, and conducting groups so many times in, in rehabilitation centers. I would go there, you know, and, and uh, conduct groups and Bible studies and whatever. And young lady, one young lady came out and, um, and she began to be discipled actually by my secretary. And as I was passing through one day, she stopped me and asked me, uh, I said, Brother Winrow, uh, she said, I've lost, I've lost a lot. Uh, through drug abuse, you know, I've lost, I lost my family, I lost my kids to the system, I lost home, I lost automobiles, I lost my job, you know, she was just telling me how destructive, you know, drug abuse have been in her life. And then she asked me, is there any hope of recovery? You know, that's a powerful question. Is there any chance, you know, of recovering my life? And the only thing I can th I, I could think of at that time in terms of passage was what Paul said in Ephesians one, uh, and I call it three things that every believer needs to know. And Paul calls it their hope, riches, and power. You know, the hope of his calling. You know, the riches of the inheritance. You know, of his inheritance. These are covenant terms. These are covenant concepts. It is not the hope of our of his our calling but the hope of his calling you know the hope of the inheritance of his inheritance that we are made beneficiaries of because of our relationship you know to the one who actually fulfilled the terms of the covenant I didn't want to get into all that but the second but the third aspect is Paul says not only do we need to know the hope of his calling and the riches of the inheritance but also his power toward them that believe and what is that power, verse 20? He said, the same power that God used in raising Christ from the dead. In other words, his resurrection power. And then he went on to describe not only the power that God used in raising Christ, but the power God used in exalting him, giving him 
influence, power and authority, you know, over principalities, powers, dominions, talking about angelic authorities. Christ has authority and power. He's the cosmic ruler of the universe and put all things under his feet. Gave him to be head of all things to serve. So he said that's the same power that God exercises toward believers. And then he goes on and applies that in chapter 2 when he opens that, that verse and says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, you know, has he made alive? You know. And so the point is uh, that there is a now and a not yet aspect to the Christian hope. I call it the existential, I mean the, the eschatological salvation concepts or salvation terms or uh, I use the term eschatological, that is they're always now and not yet. Every aspect is a now and a not yet. A now and a not yet dimension. Now, and this supports the notion of the prophetic nature of the Christian faith. It's not all about the now. You know, but what is now carries over into what? The not yet. That's right. And any time that a person uh, does not embrace the fullness of those dimensions, the fullness of that dimension, you know, their, their faith cannot be healthy. I'm reminded of when the friend of Jesus, Lazarus, passed. And you know the story, you know, he delayed, you know, about coming to uh, the, you know, coming to address the circumstance and Lazarus died and when he uh, finally went with his disciples he was met by Martha you know and Martha what did she say she says if you had been here my brother would not have died now what I like about this statement Jesus said to her in, in, in chapter 11 verse 23 he said your brother will live again and how did she respond? She responded with an understanding of the not yet. But she had no real understanding of the now aspect of his personhood. So she said, oh, yeah, I know he's going to rise at the latter day. <laughs> you know, and, this, and I believe that. Now, Jesus says, I am the resurrection. And I am the life. In other words, any hope, you know, that's, that does not have a now. Sometimes we talk about hope, you know, that's all about the future, a pie in the sky and, 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 and all of this kind of stuff, but, but no relevance to the now. And Christ is helping her to understand, yes, the resurrection is a hope for the future, but it's also a hope for now. It's also a power of now. And, and, of course, that miracle was a sign, you know, of, of kingdom, you know, values and kingdom norms. And so we know, of course, even when he told her that, you know, uh, he said, do you believe this? Your brother will rise? Your brother will live? She said, yeah, I believe that Jesus, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he came into the world. <laughs> that was her response. You know, no real dimension that this power, this person has within him the power to give life now. And so um, uh, that's, that's the dualistic, you know, that reflects the dualistic character, you know, of Christian norms and what I call the prophetic nature of Christian norms that bear witness to the prophetic character of the Christian faith. Christ in you is now the not yet uh, experience of life eternal, the life that he gives as eternal life uh, carries the notion of not yet. The other uh, description in our, that helps us to understand the character of, of the prophetic would be the foundation of the Christian gospel, I would argue, supports the prophetic character of the Christian faith. In other words, norms associated with the foundation of Christianity, such as the view of saving faith. Notice saving faith in Scripture, and a whole book is devoted, you know, to the concept, uh, to the biblical concept of faith that counters, you know, what we might find uh, in Western, our Western notions and uh, Western culture of 
Christianity and the faith that grows out of those type of expressions that's rooted in Greek philosophy that separates, you know, head and body and all this kind of stuff. But the concept of faith we find in the New Testament literally is a Hebraic concept. Faith, uh, in other words, whatever is in your head, if it's not in your hands and feet, is not faith. In other words, it's holistic. You know, James would say, uh, what is saving faith is faith that works. You know, now notice sometimes we misinterpret James to be saying faith plus works equals salvation. No, James not saying that. James is saying faith plus faith, faith plus works equal faith. And faith without works is not faith. He called it dead faith. That means it's not faith. It's demonic faith. You know, the devil had faith, but it wasn't saving faith. It wasn't faith that was responsive to the will of God. You know, faith that saves is faith that's responsive to the will of God. This is the concept of faith, you know, that is emphasized over and over and over again in Scripture. And that's why arguments that we have religiously, such as in baptism, essential salvation, all this kind of stuff, you know, these wouldn't have been arguments in the New Testament in first century times. The only reason we have these arguments because we've embraced more or less a Platonian view of faith, a Western view of faith that separates head and body, spirit and, spirit and, and matter. <laughs> you know, that type of thing. Faith, faith that exists up here in the noose. You know, but not in your hands and not in what you do. That is, that is a foreign notion you know, to, to the ancients. A foreign notion. And so, uh, over and over, John emphasizes, you know, the difference between natural expressions of faith and spiritual expressions. Natural expressions such as, uh, well, I can go on and on. Give the story of Nicodemus, the story of the woman at the well, the story, you know, of the nobleman who encounters Christ and sees Christ as a miracle work. All these stories, but once they encounter Christ in terms of who he is, faith responds to the personhood of Christ as God. The man comes to him and said, look, come down to my house. You know, my daughter is sick. You know, uh, my, yeah, my daughter is at, at the point of death. And Christ said, go your way. In other words, if I'm God, I don't need to be there. I'm already there. <laughs> you know, so the point is, they had to embrace his identity. You know, embrace who he, who he represents, what he represents. And so the point is, uh, the view of saving faith. Why does Christian Christianity promote this unique concept of faith? It's because the gospel accents decision, commitment, engagement, and action, which transforms what is in the light of what ought to be. In other words, Christians are engaged in a praxis. And that praxis cannot take place if you're if you are not impelled or, or you're not impelled and compelled by a right a right endowment of faith. Contradiction and transformation is at the heart of the Christian gospel. And all such actions are circumscribed by imperfection. And that brings us to the second foundational norm, and that is what we see, what view of humanity comes out of Christian theology. I might just say Christian, what, anthropology. What view of, of humanity? And that is the Christian message promotes the notion of human beings as possessing dignity and depravity. That's a dialectic associated with human nature. In other words, when we talk about the dignity of human beings, that is human beings having the capacity to transform what is, to change and be changed, but to do so imperfectly because of depravity. In other words, we not only profess dignity because of uh, being made in the image of God, but we also am affected by human depravity. And that is as fallen individuals. Depravity simply implies that human beings have a proclivity to, proclaim, to cling to the moment, to refuse to transform, to refuse to be transformed. Uh, and the concept of, of 
depravity precludes the possibility of human perfection and human utopias. We're not going to have a utopian society. It's not going to be. What perfect person with perfect and complete thinking can produce it? See, that's a problem. And that's why, you know, that's why there's constant, you know, continuity and discontinuity and negation and contradiction and transformation is going on all the time. The idea of, 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 of transform, of, of transformation begins in time, but it's ultimately, it's ultimately fulfilled in eternity. That's what I mean by the prophetic. You know, something that is time-based, but yet culminated in eternity. It's not, you know, in other words, human participate, but the accomplishment is divine. In other words, it's, it's a divine accomplishment, not a human achievement. All the preaching in the world is not going to totally eradicate, is not going to totally eradicate sin. That's right. And human constructions and religious institutions and all that kind of stuff, there's a purpose. But the point is, uh, human dignity, human depravity. That's why when it comes to the church and its relationship to culture, uh, we must always be discerning. You can't just embrace anything that you think is good. Because whatever is produced by human beings, there's development in it, and that development is there because human beings definitely possess a spark of, the, of, the, of divineness. And therefore, we have the ability to create. But there's also depravity there. And we've got to be able to discern that. And so the point is, uh, so in other words, we engage in countercultural kinds of activities. Let me close by, and I want to leave it you know, to a few questions here. Uh, let me close by saying, how do we reclaim you know, the prophetic? And I said that in our world today, what is most pervasive uh, in terms of the expressions of the Christian faith that we encounter, you know, are basically what I call Constantinian type of expressions, which is literally a perversion of the priestly tradition. The priestly tradition of the Christian faith is directly associated with prophetic functions. But when you talk about Constantinian expressions, what I'm labeling as Constantinian expressions, that is when Christianity, you know, is incorporated into the empire, you know, and find comfort in its alignment, you know, with the empire, uh, then it loses its fervor of social justice for social justice and all those things that flow out of that movement you know, that came out of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It loses that. And one of the reasons, there are three hindrances that has to be overcome in order to reclaim the prophetic character of the church. And one is the lack of exposure to the alternative rendering our understandings of the gospel. American context limits our exposure uh, to only and mainly Constantinian versions. This version is, 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 is the type of Christianity that places the flag over the cross, or the cross over the flag. And what you have is more or less American patriotism. In other words, the subordination of faith, of Christian faith, to American patriotism. A kind of an Americanized Christianity. Jesus was not an American. <laughs> He was a Mediterranean Jew. And it's, it's ironic that the very empire, for example, that, that incorporated Christianity, the dark side of that empire and the dark side of that culture is what was responsible for the cross. The very cross, the very culture that put him to death, Christianity became aligned with that. And I'm saying you see that same principle today uh, taking place in our society. He was, he was a Mediterranean teacher whose death put in motion a new way of life and struggle, a new way of loving, a new compassion, a new forgiveness, sacrifice, service, and stewardship. All of those values comes out of what was accomplished at the cross of Christ. The second reason for 
hindrances or the second hindrance in terms of reclaiming the prophetic is simply the lack of courage. The courage to take the gospel serious. Serious enough to embrace, to really embrace the inversion principles of the Christian faith. That is, life comes out of death. Death before resurrection. The last will be first. See, those, 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 in other words, Christ, the Christian faith and the teachings of Jesus literally turned the, turned the values of the world upside down. Upside down. Greatness through service. The one who will be greatest among you, let him be the servant of all. Let him be the slave. You know, that's an inverted value of the world. And then the courage to reject the Americanized version. In other words, the Americanized version of Christianity is Peter Pan, Disney World of comfort, convenience, stability, innocence, freedom from, freedom from struggle. No struggle, no, no engagement. And so you're totally aligned, you know, and comfortable sitting at the table of the elites. When the very side, you know, and, and refusing to critique the very institution that scar and wound people. When God has called you to make changes, to bring about change. And the third, and the third problem is the benefits. In other words, the third, the third hindrance is not just the lack of exposure, lack of courage, but the lack, but the benefits offered by the empire. Those who opt for security and comfort, enticed by imperialistic culture to live inside of the culture instead of just, in other words, not just to live in the culture, but to be of it. Not just in the world, but of the world. So it takes courage. It takes the ability to do what Jesus did in the third temptation. You know, when Satan said, I can give you all the kings of the world. You know, we're offered all the time, when we talk about Christianity, we're offered all the time, you know, uh, the idea of a, of a, a non-struggle, a non-problematic, you know, Christian faith, you know, where God intends for everybody to be rich. <laughs> That's right. You can be rich. And so we don't realize that the Lord did not promise to remove our mountains. He didn't, he didn't promise us a life without mount, a mountainless life. But he promised to give you the strength to climb them. Isn't that right? And so to be primitive necessitates being prophetic, which means being guided by a profound conception of human nature and human history. A persuasive picture of what one is as a person, what one should hope for, and how one ought to act. That's what it's about. Any any questions? Well, I have a comment. Um, it's it seems as though uh, our society right now uh, has made capitalism the god. And um, when I when I notice how uh, some officials want to privatize everything, you know, pr privatize the, the schools and um, privatize maybe uh, social services or privatize the, uh, the jails. And, and it's um, taking away some of the equality and justice um, from the government and putting it in the hands of individuals who want to profit off of these institutions. Now, um, a lot of times the government has had their own standards where they were supposed to be treating everyone equally. You know, in the school system, everyone, or in the civil service merit system, everyone was supposed to be treated equally. But once, once uh, the capitalist decide they want to privatize everything, it's like uh, stealing the money away from the government for their own pockets. Mm -hmm. And um, I kind of I, I, I see that where 
you know, there's this takeover. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, one thing I would say that when we deal with the political arena, we need to understand um, that in the world of politics are mm-hmm. uh, what can be, uh, what should be known as moral traditions. Mm-hmm. Political discourse are moral discourses. Civic republicanism, for example, is a moral discourse. Uh, what we call liberalism is a moral discourse. And I think if we understand, you know, the, the basis of these ideologies, when we examine the morality, you know, in light of Revelation, if we examine the morality of these discourses, then we'll kind of understand the policies that grows out of it. Let me say, in terms of Western uh, political discourse, Two guys in particular, you know, is mainly is mainly responsible for forming, say, communitarianism as we know it today, somewhat as we know it today. Communitarianism, by the way, uh, what is what used what is called communitarianism today is called civic republicanism. Okay, and it's an ideology that was formulated by uh, a guy named Rousseau, Jean Rousseau. Isn't that right? Uh, uh, Rousseau was an agnostic, and he had a positive view of human beings. In other words, at the heart of his of his of his philosophy uh, that contributed to the what we know as civic republicanism uh, is the notion that human beings are perfectible in well-ordered communities. Human beings are perfectible in well-ordered communities. That was a that's a major tenet, and that's and, and when you talk about human beings being perfectible in communities and the concept of communities, that's why you often hear the buzzwords, you know. In other words, uh, the role of government, you know, needs to be minimized, you know. In other words, big government is a no-no, you know, this type of thing. The other, the opposite of that. Uh, is the ideology, you know, that was somewhat shaped by a guy named John Locke. We call it liberalism, shaped by John Locke. John Locke rooted his political ideology in the Christian doctrine of sin, that human beings are fallen, and that that as fallen individuals, fallen individuals are not going to voluntarily surrender power. And so in his ideology, the role of government then was would be to protect the minority against the tyranny of the majority you know and so you have these competing you know things in other words uh, policies such as affirmative action you know comes out of the notion you know that people are just not going to surrender mm-hmm. power and privilege voluntarily so it becomes the role we need initiatives and and that type of thing, you know, to to, you know, to arbitrate, you know, between forces in society or groups in society, you know, that will not surrender their own, that are more mainly concerned about their own self-interest, you know, in that thing. That thing. In other words, another uh, writer, well, th- there's a guy named Reinhold Niebuhr, you know, during the during the Kennedy era was the public theologian and philosopher that mainly influenced uh, the liberalism of that day, you know, by John Kennedy, uh, you know, under the administration of John Kennedy. He wrote a book called Moral Man in an Immoral Society. And he was saying that individuals, individuals can and can act moral toward others, but groups don't. <laughs> groups don't don't tend to uh, act morally. Their groups tend, that individual within a group tend to be more concerned about the interests of the group as opposed to about the interests of the other. Yes? Uh, you mentioned like the American way of life and Christianity sort of being tied together a little bit. Can you expound on like what ways you've seen uh, us take the Christian view and kind of Americanize it or uh, westernize it perhaps 
Yeah, but I'd be going back to some of the lectures, <laughs> you know. But in terms of, or to, yeah, just to yeah, you know, it, it, well, you know, what I'm, what what one can obviously see is how silent the church is for the most part on such things, especially when we talk about, you know, say our tradition. I don't know how you know where you guys are in terms of when I say our tradition. I'm saying churches of Christ, for example, uh, is mainly uh, a brotherhood that has two brotherhoods, a white brotherhood and a black brotherhood, a white church and a black church. You know, and this white and black separation comes out of a culture of, you know, a history of a racist society. But there's nothing literally proactively being done in terms of deconstructing that. Why? Because for many churches, that's a social issue. In other words, that is not the concern of the church. And so we are impacted, you know, by the larger society, you know, whether it be racism in society or sexism in society and all this, and it exists among us, but we do nothing about it. There's no praxis, there's no social praxis in the church. There's no social vision, you know, and that's the way in which the church aligns itself with whatever exists in the larger culture, it's embraced you know, it, it impacts us in ways uh, that we may not necessarily be uh, aware of, uh, consciously, you know, aware of and willing to aggress. Yes. So, uh, how, how can we avoid like the trappings of embracing a prophetic vision without trying to fall to the traps of obtaining power in order to achieve that vision, you know what I'm saying? Like, it seems to me like, you know, you mentioned the suffragettes, for example. You know, like the suffragettes, you know, when you mentioned the suffrage movement. Yeah, you know, yeah, women's suffrage. Women's suffrage movement, like, they became, in order to attain the power to achieve the women's votes, they got in bed with, like, the uh, uh, temperance movement as well. Mm -hmm. Like, they, they, they were intertwined, mm -hmm. and that was a way that they could you know, kind of expand their voting block and, mm -hmm. and get, and, well, get the vote, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I guess, how, how can we have as Christians a prophetic vision to, with, without necessarily yeah. having to, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, like, there, like, there has to be, to power yeah. And, and One of the things that I didn't talk about is about this dialectic of human nature and human history. You know, that the historical process of liberation and the struggle of liberation is always ongoing and there's always constant critique you know because um, you know human beings are, are, are not perfect you know there's depravity there and so we always have to step back and be able to critique you know and and there are norms associated you know that has to be promoted uh, because of human dignity and depravity you know existing you know together and how that impacts history the continuity of history, the discontinuity of history, and how there's constantly, you know, renewal, you know, birth, renewal, renewal processes going on, you know, because things are never going to result in a, in a utopia. That's the difference between Christianity as it relates to its concept of, of self-realization and Marxism. You know, Marxism thinks that everything is moving toward a utopia, you know, where Christians uh, Christianity is a critique on history. You know, you have to constantly critique it, constantly critique the, critique the social workers, you know, the freedom fighters and the freedom movement. You know, it has to constantly come under critique and, and that's what, you know, the church is all about. We're the leaven in that loaf. Yes. Um, I read about. Um, no, we're five uh, minutes over, y'all. Oh, okay. I, I read about this this uh, new hermeneutic where um, a person was proposing that um, the church look at the Holy Spirit as a projectory, like as if the the Holy Spirit should be moving and progressing and and having the church progress as to where the Holy Spirit wants us to mature. And so what the church does is stays stagnant and wants to stay uh, traditionalist rather than um, 
improving and maturing and going on to the next level. And um, I, I don't know, have you, are you aware of this hermeneutic that, that I'm talking about? Well, let, let me say this. You know, some people think when they read, you know, writings, especially among our brethren, the academicians, um, <laughs> they think that, you know, when they talk, speak of the new hermeneutic, they think of, they think of what uh, the hermeneutic in, say, in New Testament studies, you know, of Scholomacher, you know, I don't know, Slaumacher, you know, and those, Bootmon, you know, uh, that's not what is meant by the new hermeneutic. As a matter of fact, the first class on hermeneutics, the, the concept of the new her hermeneutic originated right here at Pepperdine under two professors, number one, Tom Albright and Ron Highfield. And I took the first class. I was in. I, I was one of their Tom. first students. And what and what he was saying. And as as, as a matter of fact, Highfield wrote an article uh, later uh, that just was simply saying why we don't need another hermeneutic. And what he was really saying is the new hermeneutic is not new. It's just reading the Bible the way your grandmother would read the Bible. Mm -hmm. You know, we read the Bible with a theological understanding of who God is. You know, and we bring that theology, you know, we, we bring that theology to the text. And that's, a, that's, that's, that, that's all he said. In other words, uh, reading the Bible, interpreting scripture with a view of God. You might call this new hermeneutic, you know, idea as a theological hermeneutic. Because that's basically what they were arguing. Mm -hmm. You know, not, you know, some new mechanic and new way of exegeting and all that kind of, he wasn't talking about that. They were just saying, is how people should, should read the Bible. Okay. Okay. That's as much enough. Now, now Highfield is still here. You can go and talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much.